We are going to be jumping right back into Romans. I do encourage you uh, to come uh, tonight to Redbird, um, and uh, I'm really excited about it. Um, I, if, I, if I'm correct, I think I'm leading worship for, for Ian tonight too, which will be fun. Uh, but we are going to be looking at one of the most beautiful passages uh, in Scripture, and that is uh, Romans chapter 8. And we're going to be spending several weeks in chapter 8. And today we're just going to be looking at the first four verses. Um, and verse 1 of chapter 8 really just, I mean, is one of those verses that we need to like let sink deep into our hearts and into our minds. What I want you to understand today is that we need to, we need to be, as a community, um, dependent upon the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of confusion in the church around the Holy Spirit. I think often Christians kind of fall in, into two camps. And our, my prayer at Door of Hope is that we would maintain a very centrist position. That is, we're not cessationists. We do not believe that the work of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, stopped with the close of canon. There's nowhere in Scripture that supports that. That flows out of tradition. And I often sometimes wonder if it flows out of um, people's fear of putting their trust in the Spirit's work um, in a way that, that would leave them... Um, uh, doubting the goodness of God. Let me just simply say this. The Holy Spirit's primary role and where uh, I think our more hyper-charismatic brothers and sisters can go awry, the primary role is not signs and wonders. Uh, the primary role is, is the Spirit is a missionary spirit who is continually pointing the world and redirecting the attention of the world toward Jesus. Jesus uh, says, it is good that I go to the Father for... When I go to the Father, I will send to you another helper, the Spirit of truth. And when he comes, he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. It says that he will guide you into all truth, that he will only speak those things which I have given him. There is a movement right now to re-emphasize the Spirit, and I think that that's a good thing. However, we should never talk about the Holy Spirit apart from Jesus, for the Spirit has been wisely called by Dale Bruner, the shy one. I don't believe that the Spirit is neglected as much as the Spirit is always redirecting attention back to Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved. And so the, the, to understand kind of where Door of Hope lands, I always joke that we are charismatic with a seatbelt. I'm charismatic with a seatbelt. Uh, but Door of Hope, keeping the gospel central, has brought people from multiple streams. And I'm sure that there are some that sit within our community that, that do have more of a cessationist view. And the idea that the only thing the Holy Spirit essentially does is, is regenerates dead people and brings them alive, what we call being born again. For before we were born again, we were dead in our sins and trespasses and illuminates um, our understanding so that we can now read the scripture. The problem with a, a view that goes too far that way is that the Trinity ends up being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures, and this, the only safe place for the Spirit is relegated to the Scriptures. And I think that that's deeply problematic. But the other side, uh, the extreme, is that the Spirit is, uh, is pursued with a vigor that is driven by a desire for the sensational what I kind of refer to as a performance Christianity. This idea that, the, that our primary focus should be healing and, and signs and wonders and all of these kind of sensational, spectacular things. Listen, I believe in miracles. I've seen miracles, but miracles are miracles because they are not common. <laughs> 
God's intervention into his own creation. I always say that a, a miracle is not necessarily a violation of law, it's just simply God's intervention, like an apple falling from the tree. When you reach out and catch it, you intervened into the law of gravity, stopping it from hitting the ground. I think that God does intervene by his spirit in, in miraculous ways. And I have had an experience where God's spirit showed up in a very powerful way when I was in London in a time when I needed it, and it was a supernatural experience. But how do we know that it was the spirit of God? And we're told specifically in scripture that we are to test the spirits. And I always say that the spirit can do all kinds, spirits can be functioning in churches all the time. I actually never deny when people say, I experienced this thing. I'm like, the question is, is did it point you to Jesus? Because if it didn't point you to Jesus, then there's something problematic because you remember Pharaoh's court was able to do almost all the same signs that Moses was able to do. And I think that, that wherever God is working powerfully, the enemy is always in the midst counterfeiting that work. And so when we test the spirit, the question is, is, is it pointing us, pushing us back to Jesus? And so when we talk about a need for, I want, I've had people say, well, I wanna see Door of Hope be more, experience more freedom in the spirit. I would love that too. I think that Portland is naturally a very self-conscious city. Um, we're over, I always joke that maybe we're not charismatic with the seatbelt, maybe we're self-consciously charismatic, which is inside I'm lifting my hands every Sunday, but outside, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Uh, and I think that that can be sort of the spirit. Uh, and I believe that, that to be a people that are led by the Spirit are a people that are going to live radically for Jesus and the Spirit births within us uh, a love that is not natural to the human heart in its fallen condition. We need to be conduits of agape love and that requires that we be Spirit-filled. And this is all I wanna say about being Spirit-filled. Being Spirit-filled is not you getting more of the Spirit. Being Spirit-filled is the Spirit getting more of you. And I think that this is super essential. As Paul has taken us uh, through these first seven chapters, I want you to just be reminded that we have entered into a new environment. In chapter 6, verse 11, he says the outcome of the gospel is this. Um, he says that we, are dead to, we were dead to sin, now we're alive to God. There's a new correspondence. There was once a relational rift between God and humanity. I always say that sin by its essence destroyed relationship in three directions that the essence of hell is, is that it is a place where relationship does not exist. The essence of salvation in heaven is a place where relationship is perfectly restored. And so the gospel, what is the first outcome of the gospel is that we were once dead in our sin, now we are alive unto God. There's this new correspondence, the work of Jesus, the atoning work of Christ, um, his entrance into the world, his entrance into sinful flesh, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That, that, that middle wall of separation that, that, toward, that, that created rifts in our relationship with God, with others, and even with ourselves has been torn down because Christ has reconciled us. There's a new correspondence. In, verse, in chapter seven, verse four, it says that we are dead to the law and now we are essentially married to Christ. There's a new influence. The law was an influence that condemned us. It was never capable of producing what it, what it demanded. That is why it is the law, um, the law of, of life and death 
life if one could keep it, but no one is able to keep it. So all it was able to produce in us was death. In that Paul says, the law is good for if I had not known the law, I would not have known what sin is. But by the very reality of this immovable law, I, am, I know that I am fundamentally lost without God's intervention into my existence. I always say that we can't experience salvation unless we recognize that we're lost and need to be saved. Um, the death of, of, I mean, the, the birth of forgiveness is dependent upon the death of our innocence, the recognition that we are guilty. Um, and the beauty of this is that now we are dead to law. We're not held by law. In fact, we're gonna see in, in here in the first few verses that Paul refers to the gospel actually as the law of the spirit. And that the law of the spirit is driven by one principle and one principle alone, and that is total surrender. Um, there's some passages that I think are really important as we begin to look at what the spirit-filled life is, what life in the spirit looks like. In Ezekiel 36, there is a prophecy that looks forward to the age of the gospel. And it's in chapter 36, verse 27, God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel and he says that there is a day coming when I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And this is where we get the concept of, of of sanctification and I think sanctification it's very important that we define our terms there because sanctification can quickly become ladder climbing it can quickly become you've been saved by grace there's nothing you could do to to earn it but when we get people into the church we're like but now you got to keep it which you got to earn it like you got to work for it or you're going to lose it and we've actually weigh people down with new kinds of law that has very little to do with the gospel. I believe that what, what God is saying is that the spirit in us is that our ability to walk with God is, is the very key to our ability to reflect God to the lost world, which is relational correction um, being put and then being given the spirit of God, which is new influence and, and a new dynamic. We now are able to live out of that relationship in a way that we were not capable of living before. This is why Paul says, do not use the freedom that you have in the gospel to go back to serving the flesh, which is what I think, sadly, many Christians do. I think in Galatians 5.16, it says, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Again, in Galatians 5.25, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Sanctification is walking in the spirit. Walking in the spirit is something I want you to think in terms of relational. You know that word walk, you know the first time it appears in scripture? It's actually in Genesis. And who is it that is walking? It's God. At the fall, our first parents in a fallen state, we don't find them walking, we find them naked and ashamed. They become aware of their nakedness and they are now ashamed. They become self-conscious rather than God-conscious. And, and, and in doing so, they, they begin to hide themselves. They hide themselves from God. They hide themselves from one another. Um, and the whole scapegoat system, which continues to control the narratives of our world today, is birthed. For the per first time we hear the word walk in Scripture is it says, and God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And it wasn't the walk, you think about this, like you get in a fight with someone, you're like, I gotta go for a walk. 
It's the walk of like, I need to clear my mind because I'm so angry. That's not the walk that we find God doing. This is, the, the scripture, the narrative of the Bible is not humanity rebels, God is angry, humanity ignores God, and, and never the two shall mix until the good, gentle son gets between angry dad and bad kids and makes it right. That is a fundamentally flawed vision of the gospel. From Genesis to Revelation, what we see is a God who continually gets into the muck, a God who steps into human brokenness. And the walk that we see God making is the same walk that the Spirit wants us to be engaged in, which is God walking directly into the mess of creation. It's God walking, where are you? Isn't it funny that we add to God's question the tone that we want to apply based upon our own understanding of who we think God is. And so for some of you, God is an angry God. And so you hear him like screaming, where are you? And the kids hiding terrified of the holy God who's there to smite them. He isn't there to smite them. He's there to restore them. And what happens when he walks up to them? There's the scapegoat system in play. It wasn't me, Lord. It was the woman whom you gave me. It wasn't me, Lord. It was the serpent who deceived me. And I think that this is a beautiful thing because walking with God is a relational walk. It's hard. I don't know about you guys. I'm not a runner. In fact, I think running's stupid and I don't understand it. Um, <laughs> it's bad for your knees. I don't understand why people do it. Uh, I, I, I even want, Heather, I had to pick you up and drive you home because running, you hurt yourself. You remember? This is why. I, know, I saw you nod in disagreement because you're a serious runner. But let me remind you that I drove you home because you hurt yourself. <laughs> Luckily, she collapsed in front of my house. Darcy's like, you need to go drive her home. <laughs> and it's because you ran like 100 miles that week. It's not good. That's not normal. Ever. <laughs> so Seth Mercer is a big runner. And I remember he asked me to go for a run with him. And I'm not a runner. And it was the first time we hung out. And he wanted to have conversations with me the entire time we were running. And, I, and I'm like, stop talking. Crazy, you're not even a human being. And like, I'm just like panting. And I think I wore like little cut off like jean shorts, which is, <laughs> is like, shouldn't run in that. Chafing. Um, and uh, I, and he's, I can't think, but walking is motion without strife. It is. It's this beautiful thing. It's a, it's a, it's a movement without strife. Um, and the best walk when I go on a walk with my wife is not me walking in a hurry in front of her um, or the other horrible thing that I do, refuse to walk at all. But it's when I walk with her and I'm in stride with her and it's there that we have communion. This is what God is inviting us into as his children. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. What he means by that is you'll walk with me. You're going to walk with me because Jesus is the end of the law. And when we think about that, it helps us to begin to establish the beauty of what we're dealing with here um, in Romans chapter 8. In verse 1, this powerful passage states something that we cannot lose sight of. And that is that the sinner is now accepted. In Romans 8.1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Paul writes in, in chapter five, we have peace with God. Relational writing has happened due to the atoning work of Jesus. No condemnation and justification are two sides of the same coin. Paul is now stating the negative. Um, the outworking of the gospel is that once we were dead in our sins, guilty, we were lost. Condemnation means that we're experiencing the outworking of the sinful, uh, the sinful existence by which we are living. And that condemnation is something that Jesus eradicates. This is fundamentally why I disagree with many of the ideologies that are being, being pushed at us from, the, from society and often from the church. Anything that perpetuates guilt and shame is actually fundamentally at odds with the gospel. And I don't need to speak to what ideologies I speak of, but there are plenty. This is why political infighting in the church is so fundamentally upsetting to me because it creates an us against them mentality that has no place in the gospel. That Jesus died for both the victim and the victimizer. And that it's not the right versus the left or the left versus the right. And anytime the church gets into the, the murky waters of politics, I think it loses its soul because there is no political system of man that is, that is going to actually bring about the peace that we so ardently seek. It's not going to be found. And I think that what we have here is the great proclamation of the gospel and it is the proclamation that we are to bring to all people regardless of class, of ethnicity, of race. We, none of that matters for we're told in Revelation that there are tongues from every tribe around the throne of God and that Jesus is no longer favoring. And someone asked me like, do I believe that God blesses countries anymore? I'm like, no, I do not believe that. I believe that that was part of the dispensation of the Old Testament, that God utilized a nation to be, he says to Israel, you shall be a nation of priests to all nations. They failed in that. God brings forth Jesus. Jesus is the new representative man, one who dies for the many and the many in the one. And as a new representative humanity, God is not in the business of blessing nations. He's in the business of blessing people by redeeming them. And a nation may be blessed by the fact that people are, that depending upon how many people are redeemed, but the fact is, is that when I was in a book club and someone, uh, we're, we're reading a really boring book right now. I'm in a book club with a, three very smart doctors and one of them loves to enforce, re, every time it's his turn to pick. I just got in the book club to read novels. I read for a living, I, like I just wanna read literature. But why am I reading Roger Scranton's How to Be a Conservative right now? Why am I reading that book? He's, like an, he's a British philo political philosopher, although he means something very different by conservative than we mean in America. But, but nonetheless, it brought up this conversation. Do you believe in American exceptionalism? <laughs> and I was like, I'm like, of course I'm an American. I'm exceptional. That's what all Americans believe, right? <laughs> I, I, I'm, like, I, I'm like, if you mean by that, is America the, the perfect experiment that's done more good for the world than any other country? Whatever good it has done, it needs to be counterbalanced by Pornhub and McDonald's, okay? So we need to understand that America has also given the world some of the worst things in human history. 
because people are mixture and sinners and we as the church sit outside of that reality. And what we have to understand is that what God calls us to be is conduits of his grace and he doesn't, he's actually not, not even that interested in what political regime is around us as we are conduits of, of God's grace. Because the fact is, is that Jesus isn't coming back as a Republican or a Libertarian or as a Democrat or as a Socialist. He's not coming back as, as a, a fascist, but he is coming back as a dictator because he's the Lord of Lords. And he's coming back to establish his kingdom. And there is no condemnation for those that are in him. And I think that this is very important for us to understand. That usage of that word in is a, the strongest and most important preposition found in scripture. It speaks of a positional placement that one is in. If you're in the house, that means you're inside the house versus outside of the house. If you're in Christ, that means that the relationship that we have with the Father is because the Father sees us cloaked in the Son's righteousness. Not a righteousness that is, that is our own, but it is a righteousness that flows out of our total dependence upon Christ. And this is why I always say faith is not just believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for the sins of the world. Faith is a disposition toward Jesus, the Son of God, that allows him the right to be Lord in and through your life. That faith is a trusting of your whole self upon him. It's leaning into him. It's putting your weight upon him the way that you're putting your faith in the pew that you are sitting in. You're not thinking about that. You're not exercising faith in the pew by saying, I believe the pew exists. You are, you are exercising faith only once you sit upon the pew. It is then that the pew is allowed to do the thing that it is meant to do, which is hold you up. And that's why I just want to let you guys know that the pews are going away. For real. If you want one, let me know. We're not replacing anything. We've decided that we feel like the New Testament uh, apostolic worship service is either cross-legged or standing with hands raised at all times. <laughs> we just have little, little sitting rugs. The, uh, no, we, bigger plan. It's called Alpha and it requires, it requires chairs. All right. This powerful thing, no condemnation for those that are in Christ. I want you to th think about this. There's a, been a lot of conversation historically around what it means to be baptized by the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit, I think, actually speaks to what we have here. To be in Christ, um, it talks of being placed into Him. Some people have believed that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that you get saved, you're born again, um, but then there is this second blessing that occurs when one becomes, uh, receives like uh, just this unbelievable uh, movement of the spirit into one's life where they become freshly empowered. Deal Moody actually talks about a, a, an experience where he was pastoring at, at Moody Memorial and there was a group of old women that would pray on the front steps of the church every week for him uh, that he would receive a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he got irritated because he was already leading hundreds and hundreds of people to the Lord and he was fully doing this vibrant ministry. But after a while, he became convinced that there was something to what these women were praying for. So he began to join them to pray fervently that God would, would bring the Spirit upon him in power. 
And he talks about a day in which he was walking down Wall Street in New York City when the Holy Spirit came upon him in such a way the presence of God became so manifest that he said he had to go back to his hotel room where he remained, I think for like two days, feeling the weight of God's hand, his glory upon him to the point where he actually asked God to still his hand unless he die under the weight of that glory. And it is true that Moody's ministry after that experience exploded globally. An uneducated shoe salesman, um, there was a, a humility and, and, and a, a, just an, an unbelievable godly ambition and a belief that God really does want to save people and he wants to empower us to do it. Here's the thing, I actually do not deny Moody's experience, I just wouldn't call it the baptism of the Spirit. I believe that the Spirit can come on us in power in a unique way because God's sovereignty means that he's free to do what he wants in accordance with his, with his character, in accordance with his purpose and plans. But baptism is about immersion into. And the baptism of the Spirit happens the moment you are born again. When you are born again, you get all the Holy Spirit you are ever going to get because the Holy Spirit isn't something, it's someone. It's Jesus' very presence in your life by his spirit. And so we are in Christ and the spirit is in us. And that double reality speaks of this new environment that we find ourselves in and then a new empowerment from within. The new environment is very important. When Henry was a little boy, um, he loved to go to pet shops. And there was this pet shop in um, Redlands, California that I used to take him to when I worked at a church down in Temecula. We would drive all the way to this pet shop because they had all these exotic lizards and snakes and stuff. And I remember they had poison dart frogs. And I was like, aren't those like so poisonous that if you touch them, it'll kill you? And uh, so I asked it because Henry's like, dad, I want a poison dart frog. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that should not be legal, buddy. Um, so I asked the, the store owner, I was like, how are you able to sell these? And he said, the moment the dart frog is taken out of the jungle, the Amazon, um, it no longer is poisonous because what makes it poisonous is actually what it eats. It's its diet. And so the new environment actually eradicates the danger. And I think that there is something about that for people that say, you know, I can't change. I was born this way. I always like to remind people, you may have been born that way, but you have been born again. And if you've been born again, it says, if anyone be in Christ, all things are new. There is a now and not yet reality to new creation. Listen, we can't escape the glitches of our past. I can't change the fact that I didn't grow up with a dad. It creates problems in my psyche that is unavoidable. But Jesus is bigger than the broken realities of our past. And he has an unbelievable ability to weave the dissonant notes of that existence into his redemptive story. So when it says here, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, this is the key to living in the power of the Spirit. Because if you believe that every time you blow it, Jesus is ready to smash your head in with, a, with an iron rod, then you have a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel because the gospel is derived from the fact that you can't do it. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones would, um, I thought it was a little bit sneaky, but he says, how many of you are trying to be a better Christian? And, he, and all these people raise their hands and he goes, if you raise your hand, you don't understand what it means to be a Christian at all. Because you cannot try to be a Christian. You can only be a Christian as you receive the work that Jesus has already done for you. 
And this is why it is important. You will not be motivated by the idea that if I fail, God is angry with me. And that's why I say every week, again and again and again, that on your worst day, he is crazy about you. Because only love and the fact that there is no condemnation. I do not stand guilty and, and damned before a holy and perfect God. I stand justified and covered by the holy and perfect Son. And when the Father looks at me, he sees the righteousness of the Son around me as a robe. What a powerful and beautiful reality. Not only is the sinner now accepted, but the law has been fulfilled. In verse two, it says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Notice here that liberation joins no condemnation as the two great blessings, which are ours if we are in Christ Jesus. And that's why he says, if indeed the Spirit of God is within you. And this is why we're told to examine ourselves. And that examination flows out of community. The gospel is about a restoration of relationship as we live life together. The evidence of a life that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus is played out as we live life together. Learn about Jesus together. Live out the life of Jesus together. Learn what it means to surrender to the Spirit's guidance together. And here you find this beautiful thing because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free. Jesus said, it's good that I go to the Father for when I go to the Father, I will send to you another helper. But when he says go to the Father, he meant through the cross, which is why we call it our door of hope. Because the cross is the place where sin is dealt with, where the condemnation is dealt with so that we can now live free. The middle wall of separation is torn down. And he says here, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit. Now, why does he use the law of the Spirit? Um, why does he use the language of law again to describe the Spirit? And, and I think that this is, this is something that's a, a really beautiful play on words that Paul's using, because he just got done saying that we can't be saved by law, that law cannot produce what it demands. But the law of Spirit is another way of Paul just saying the gospel. The gospel is... The, fulfill, the one who has fulfilled the law actually come into our broken lives, our impotence. And the Spirit can't fill us by us trying to work alongside it. We don't, we don't help the Spirit. That was my fundamental flaw when I became a Christian. I thought being a Christian meant Jesus is on my side and now I, with Jesus, can co-plan my life. I know I've been told you have a perfect plan for my life, Jesus. I feel like I know me pretty good. Let's you and I work together and you can get me on the cover of Rolling Stone by next year. It's gonna be awesome. I promise you, I'll give you so many kudos. Help me do this. As I like to ask, do you remember that issue? No, you don't because it never happened because God was good and merciful and he doesn't co-plan lives. He has a perfect plan. And the fact is, is that for us personally, it might be quite difficult. I think that I, I'm never even really comfortable saying God has a perfect plan for your life because from your perspective, I don't know, perfect plan can mean a whole lot of things. Joseph was a perfect plan, but it didn't seem very awesome. Jeremiah was a perfect plan, but he never saw a single piece of fruit in his entire ministry and it's the greatest crybaby in scripture. And the fact is, is that God's plan is perfect and what we have to believe is that the best is yet to come and it's not going to be found on this side of eternity. And the only way that we experience the best 
that is yet to come is moment by moment experiencing Jesus' very presence, who's with us, who will never leave us nor forsake us. The law has been fulfilled. We have been liberated. And this is really important. In a culture that holds tenaciously to the concept of freedom, we need to understand that America's view of freedom is completely at odds with a gospel vision of freedom. Because American freedom is all about individual rights. The gospel rejects the word individual first and foremost. The church fathers didn't say there's one God, three individuals. Church fathers said there's one God, three persons. Philosophically, individual is your uniqueness defined apart from others. Philosophically, personhood is your uniqueness defined in relationship with others. That's why the church fathers are very specific in the way that they frame that language. And I think it's important for us to understand that gospel freedom is not the freedom to be whoever I want to be. Gospel freedom is the freedom to do what is right, which is to live out your life as a living sacrifice, poured out for the good of others. What does Paul say? For, the God, for God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our tribulations. He doesn't say, for God is a God of comfort who gets us out of all tribulation, which is how many Christians are living right now. Do you know how many people have left Portland because they can't handle how liberal the city is and they're going to move to, you know, safer, more Christian places in the world like Idaho? Listen, that's where all the Nazis live. For real. I lived by there. It's true. There's massive Nazi like Coeur d'Alene, every year, Nazi march, every year there. I'm just going to put my foot down. It's where the Nazis live. <laughs> it's my way of selling you on Portland and its awesomeness. <laughs> I mean, you got to have a pretty strong argument for why Portland might be better. Uh, it's like, if you want to go live with the Nazis, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> the fact is, is it doesn't matter where we are as long as Jesus is the one that's leading you there and he isn't trying to lead you to a place of comfortability he brings comfort in our tribulation, and the fact is, is that what he calls us to is to be a witness. And there is no home for the child of God on this side of eternity, for we are all pilgrims of dispersion. And Jesus himself said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And what we should understand, and when Jesus said, follow me, it means he's going somewhere. We are walking with him, and it doesn't matter where he is leading us as long as he's the one leading that's where the peace is. That's where the comfort is. That's where the freedom is. It's not the freedom to go do what you want, to get away from all the things that drive you crazy here because you're not going to escape it because as long as sin continues to be the fundamental core at human existence, you're never going to be, be able to escape the stupidity of humanity because you are contributing to that stupidity just like me. And that's why we need a savior. The goodness of the gospel isn't it funny? We're like, I need to go. I, was, I thought that after being in Texas. I'm like, I want to move to Texas. It was easier there. It was fun. There's no stress. There's no mass. All these things. There's no pretentiousness. I'm sure it has its own problems. And it's always greener on the other side. It's just called wanderlust. Like, we always romanticize places that we're not. And I think that that's the problem is that our satisfaction is not found in this or that location or this or that job. Our it's not even found in, in how many people thought that they were going to be full, fulfilled human beings when they got married and then you married 
like Darcy, she married me, which is like a marrying like a 12-year-old boy, which is really fun for like a month. And then she's like, oh my gosh, I literally have married a child who wears makeup. What am I going to do? And the Lord has just worked that out of her. Is that, that if we put our hope in anything in this world, even the best things, they will break our hearts if they become God's. Our liberation is a liberation from the things of this world so that we can actually properly engage the world and enjoy it for what it is with open hands under the power of the Spirit. The law has been fulfilled, which means that we are now free in the Spirit and we have been freed from sin and death. We are not held to law anymore because death and sin was put to rest on the cross. Look what it says in verse 3. Sin has been condemned. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Notice, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus himself has condemned sin in the flesh, which means he took the condemnation into himself. I want to just spend just a moment. This is a very important theological concept that I don't think people understand. People often think of the incarnation that is God in the flesh. 2,000 years ago, this man, Jesus, walks on the earth and claims to be one with God. And what theologians have held to from the beginning of the birth of the church is that the one God of Israel is actually triune in nature. That God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that God entered into the human existence and took, that, took the, the, the brokenness of human existence into himself, that God became something that he was not before, which is that he became man. Not God cloaking himself with humanity, but actually fusing himself, if you will, with humanity in a way that will remain forever. What's powerful about this picture is that when we think about Jesus, Often our view is that Jesus is actually some kind of Superman. He had an unfair advantage. He was God. So of course he didn't sin. He was God. But what we're told is that Jesus actually emptied himself of his power, of his authority. So what, how did Jesus function in power then as the one who walked on the earth and did all these signs and wonders? Was it Jesus doing it in his own strength? What I would argue is that Jesus gives us a vision of what it looks like to be spirit-filled. That at the baptism, what we are told is that the heavens open, the, the dove descended upon Jesus' head um, as he's baptized into a baptism of a repentance. He has nothing to repent of, but he identifies fully with human brokenness. And it, this is what brings the voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son of whom I'm well pleased. And it says, and immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness, spirit led. And where does the spirit lead him? Into a place of temptation. And in the weakness and brokenness of human flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, who emptied himself of his, of, his, of his divinity, functions in total yieldedness to the Father, allowing the Spirit to work through him. And so in the weakness of human frailty, the Son of Man, why do you think they call him the Son of Sorrows? Because he took on the brokenness, the fragility of, human, of the human experience, which means he took sinful flesh into himself without sinning, which means that he felt sin more acutely than any of us could even imagine. If sin is a huge part of what it means to be human, how could we worship a God that doesn't understand sin? But we do 
have a God who understands. This is why we are told that he was tempted in every way but without failure. And this is why we can trust him. He is our sympathetic high priest. He must be God enough to save us and man enough to understand us. And in Jesus, this is why I find Jesus so compelling. And I think it's super important for us to understand that it wasn't just on the cross that all of a sudden, I think we often have this picture that Jesus took sin upon himself like, like a human backpack. But he himself wasn't like, you know, tainted with it uh, because he never sinned. So how did it work? Well, it, you know, he's more carried it. No, I believe every time Jesus healed, every time he did a miracle, every time he forgave a sin, he took the brokenness of that person and he brought it into himself and exchanged it with his life. Therefore, he was feeling the whole life of Jesus has saving significance and it culminates in power on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin. So he experienced the fullness of the depravity of humanity without ever being depraved. He became sin so that he could take the condemnation that we deserve into himself because God's desire is not your condemnation. His desire is restored relationship that for whatever mysterious reason and one we cannot explain, God is not content to exist without you. He may not need you, but he chooses to not exist without you. And that is a beautiful and profound reality. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. And this is why it is important for us to understand when we continue to confess our sins, it's not that we're asking for forgiveness for things that haven't already been forgiven. It's just that we're, we're speaking out and giving no space to something that should not any longer have control over our lives. And the way that we release ourselves from its control is actually by being honest by the fact that it's still present even though we're a new creation. It's the AA meeting. I'm an alcoholic, even though you may not have drank for 10 years. The confession in, in, a, in community is actually the key to the victory. And so finally, the spirit has been given. The sinner is accepted. The law has been fulfilled. Sin has been condemned, which means the spirit now has the ability to work in us. If we are in Christ, we need to understand that he comes to dwell within us in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And this is where we close, friends. Are you allowing the spirit to lead you again and again to the feet of Jesus? Would you consider yourself spirit-led the control of the spirit does not mean that you lose your identity. In fact, you become more fully human the more the spirit actually is able to lead. It's not like you become a robot by which you're just a conduit moving, although there are times where I feel like I have to speak the things that I speak even when I don't want to. There are moments where the spirit can take over. Um, and Jesus said, don't be afraid of what you'll say when people arrest you, for in those moments God will give you by his spirit the words to speak, but we have to step out in faith and trust as the Lord leading you. Are you more concerned with Jesus and following him than you are with your personal comfort level or your happiness? Are you, are you one of those people that's been obsessed with all of, the, all of the unrest? Are you obsessed with the news? Do you spend more time reading the endless news feeds that 
can, may or may not be able to be trusted more than you spend time in the scripture, more than you spend time at the foot of the cross, more than you spend time wondering how is it that I can be a witness for Jesus today? Because people are broken and they're hurting. When we have one from our own midst that takes their own life because they feel nothing but despair, if that can happen to a believer who came to faith at Door of Hope, how much more for those that feel absolutely isolated with no hope in the world? And you, you have what, if you truly believe Jesus is all that he said he is and you've been born again, you literally have the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence dwelling within you, why would you make that a private affair? The gospel is personal, but it is never private. And the power of the spirit is going to mean that you have a missionary spirit who is going to drive us into the world to be conduits of grace. This is the call upon our lives. This is the gospel. And this is where our real freedom lies. This is where our allegiance needs to be. And this is why it is so important as we call Door of Hope again and again, this city needs us right now. It needs us. And what it really needs is Jesus working through us as we yield to his spirit. May we be a spirit-filled people and may we point the city of Portland in power, in love, and in self-control to King Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.